I'm Dr. Dillard, and welcome to the podcast, How Black People Lost Their Minds. And thank you for joining. Since this is the first podcast of How Black People Lost Their Minds, I'd like to introduce myself to you. My educational background is as an engineer, an attorney, a business executive, a medical doctor in internal medicine. I understand none of those specifically apply to the content here, but I think they bring an overall roundness to it in such a way they all require extensive research skills, which I think the content demands. For the content I will be sharing will be fairly new to most of the audience and possibly so shocking that one may want to verify the information that's being shared. So what's presented here must be verifiable. My experience on the subject matter is having been born in Virginia and growing up a descendant of the forced unpaid worker class in America, notwithstanding my travels throughout some of the most amazing countries in the world, performing medical missions and extensive research in the various museums from the Great Pyramids in Egypt to the remnants of the Great Wall in what was once the great city of Benin and the magnificent Great Walls of Great Zimbabwe. These are places most of those in the forced and unpaid workers class travel from to the Americas. Plus my legal background helps as we discuss and identify the various legal blockades that prevented the early workers from opportunities thereby causing them to leave their descendants' generational poverty. How black people lost their mind begins on the day the forced unpaid worker class arrived in America. These people had come from great kingdoms and city-states, such as the great city of Benin, which boasts city streets and street lamps as far back as the 15th century. The kingdom of Ghana, which specialized in the gold trade and koala nuts, which became the main ingredients in the Coca-Cola. The Mali Empire, home of a great university and learning center during the 15th century. And the Kingdom of Zimbabwe, early 19th century. It once had a monopoly on the gold and ivory trade stretched all the way to China. These empires were large and powerful with monarchs in complex political structures, governing hundreds of thousands of people. Art, learning, and technology flourished, and the people were skilled in medicine, mathematics, science, and astronomy. In addition to the manufacturing of domestic goods, they made fine luxury items in bronze, ivory, gold, and terracotta for both local use and trade. These people had experience as civic administrators, construction engineers, and like professionals when they came to America. Upon arriving in the New World, the need was basically for agricultural work, and anyone with a good body was used for farm work. The New World presented them no opportunities to use their knowledge, so their knowledge and high levels of achievements were unnecessary 
and became the ministry. Workers in the kingdom of Benin had built a wall of 9,900 miles around the city to protect their amazing kingdom. At the time, it was the largest man-made structure on earth, and it was four times the size of the Great Wall of China. Building it required 100 times more material than the Great Pyramid in Egypt. If you were to visit Benin today, you can find remnants of the wall still standing. In 1674, Portuguese Captain Lorenzo Pinto visited Benin and wrote in his ship's logs, and I quote, Where the king resides is larger than Lisbon. All the streets are straight and run as far as the eye can see. The houses are large, especially that of the king, which is richly decorated and has fine columns. The city is wealthy and industrious. It is so well organized that theft is unknown and the people live in such security that they have no doors to their homes, unquote. The Benin bronzes were created in Benin and are a group of several thousand metal plaques and statues and sculptures that represent the royal palace of Benin. The objects form the best examples of Benin art and represent the workers achieving at their highest quality. Most of the plaques were taken by the British in furtherance of European imperialistic and economic interests. 200 pieces were taken to the British Museum in London, while the rest were taken to other European museums. A large number are held with other valuable collections in Germany and the United States. The pieces have been studied all over the world, and to this day, no one has been able to explain how they were made. The workers in the Ghana Empire were producers of gold. Their work with gold caused the empire to become known as the Gold Empire. The empire also grew rich from their trans-Saharan trade in gold, textiles, foods, and salt. Handcrafted leather goods found in present-day Morocco had their origins in this great empire. Al-Bakri, a Moorish nobleman, lived in Spain, would talk to merchants who had visited Ghana in the 11th century. And he wrote of the king, as he was told, and I quote, he sits in audience or to hear grievances against officials in a domed pavilion around which stand 10 horses covered with gold embroidered material. Behind the king stand 10 pages holding shields and swords decorated with gold. And on his right are the sons of the kings of his country wearing splendid garments and their hair braided with gold. The governor of the city sits before the king and around him are ministers seated likewise. At the door of the pavilion are dogs of excellent pedigree that hardly ever leave the place where the king is guarding him 
around their necks, they wear collars of gold and silver studded with the number of balls of the same metals, unquote. Ghana was known for its wealth and power because of its control of the trans-Saharan trade routes. It was also known for its sophisticated political economic systems as well as its rich cultural traditions. The Kingdom of Mali workers' history is just as important because they greatly inspired the spread of language and customs throughout the world. Mali became an important trading center as well as a famous center for wealth, culture, and learning. Timbuktu, an important city in Mali, was one of the major cultural centers of the entire world. Huge libraries and universities were built there and became meeting places of famous poets, scholars, and artists of their time. The great scholars of Timbuktu are known for their records of their knowledge and research known as the manuscripts of Timbuktu. They refer to the large number of historical important manuscripts that have been preserved for centuries. The collections include manuscripts about art, medicine, philosophy, and science. Manza Musa, a Mali king, was best known for his pilgrimage to Mecca. 60,000 people accompanied him, along with 200 camels laden with gold, silver, food, clothing, and other goods. His civic administration of his state involved dividing the empire into provinces, each with its own governor and towns that were administered by a mayor, just as it's done here in America. The great famous Zimbabwe was highly developed at the time it was built. Its economy was mainly based on cattle raising, crop cultivating, and the trade of gold on the coast of the Indian Ocean. It was the heart of a thriving trading empire from the 11th to the 15th centuries. It boasted a great wall that had lots of structures inside the walls that would have been advanced technology for its time period. Its size and innovation shows that it was an important power in the area at the time. Several inventions and innovations such as the windmill, semicircular wall structures, and preferential estate planning for female heirs originated in Zimbabwe. Great Zimbabwe stands as one of the most extensive developed centers in the 15th century and stands as a testament to the organization, autonomy, and economic power of its people. There were other great kingdoms and nation-states where the forced and unpaid workers came from to work in Americas. Their numbers are too great to mention. Since coming to America, the forced and unpaid workers worked on plantations, farming, harvesting cotton, tobacco, indigo, rice, and other crops. They never received any compensation for their work. Those of the dominant culture received all the benefits. Those benefits included 50 acres of land for every forced and unpaid worker who worked the land. The value of each forced and unpaid worker 
the value of the crops each forced and unpaid worker grew and harvested. And if the forced and unpaid worker was a female, the landowner would take the value of her offspring. That's four income stream for the landowners in the dominant class. The dominant class made billions from these practices. Money from these billions have passed down through generations, supporting their descendants and institutions. Currently today, they are those descendants of the dominant class who say they had nothing to do with what happened to the forced and unpaid worker a long time ago. But they have because they thrive. And their existence today were on the trust funds that dated back to when the two groups first arrived in America. Those funds still pay out a certain amount of money to their trustee descendants, either monthly or yearly, thereby not allowing them to deplete the fund. This way the fund is passed down from generation to generation, either through descendants or in support of institutions. Those in the forced and unpaid worker class received nothing. The only thing they inherited was a life of poverty. That life of poverty has been passed down to their descendants from generation to generation, thereby having given them generational poverty. They live in the worst neighborhoods. They have the worst health care. Crime runs rampant in their communities and is perpetuated throughout the country. They have the highest infant mortality rates and have the highest unemployment rates. How is this possible? That people who work with and alongside the dominant class and a forced partnership and receiving no pay but built a country never had an opportunity to participate in the wealth that was created. In this podcast, I will discuss how from the first day the forced and unpaid worker came to America, the dominant class put legal blockades in place that blocked them from opportunities, even though together in a forced partnership, they both built the greatest economy the world has ever known. At almost the same time, two distinct groups came to this country. The dominant class and the forced and unpaid worker class. It's been said, They came on different ships, but they are in the same boat now. Of these two groups that came to America, the dominant group came, found, and created opportunities with the help of the forced and unpaid worker group. From the beginning, King James of England wanted to gain a British presence in what was then called the New World. The Portuguese Spanish, Dutch, and French had already established colonies in the New World. The Spanish founded this colony in 1496 in Hispaniola. The Portuguese first colony was in Brazil in 1500. 
the French established its first colony in Nova Scotia, Canada in 1605. The British found its first colony, Jamestown, in 1607. And the Dutch founded its first colony with the founding of New Amsterdam in 1624. So the main focus with this episode is to show how Great Britain established the Virginia Company of London to enter into the New World. This was an English company of British elites who were looking to become richer by establishing a colony at Jamestown. The company was chartered by King James in 1606. This allowed the king to reap the benefits of colonization. That included natural resources, new markets for the English goods, and its leverage against the Spanish with no cost to the English crown. And investors were protected from catastrophic losses in the event of the project's failure. The company established a settlement in Jamestown in 1607. The King's Charter democratized the company's governance and reformed its financial model. The Charter the King issued stated, and I quote, to make habitation, plantation, and to produce a colony of sundry for their people in that part of America commonly called Virginia, unquote. The company consisted of investors who pooled resources to fund an enterprise, and if it was successful, they would share the profits. This arrangement to fund colonial ventures proved to be attractive both to the king and the investors. The companies allow King James to reap the benefits of colonization without incurring substantial costs. In 1606, the king was in debt and short of money and credit to invest in financial risky projects because France and Spain had claimed much of the North American coast. Planting colonies there was politically risky, especially for King James, who was determined to ease tensions with Spain. But putting such work in the hands of a company allowed the king to distance himself should a crisis arise. The benefits of the company were no less pronounced for the investors. It allowed the investors to distribute their losses more widely in the event of failure. This promoted innovation by reducing individual costs and thereby encouraging more risk. The company also allowed investors to negotiate their charter as a group, providing them more leverage and making King James responsible to a larger entity. In theory, this resulted in the king being less likely to renege on its support. So English first joint stock company, the Company of Merchant Adventurers, were chartered in 1551 a northeastern passage around Scandinavia to China. In 1555, it became the Muscovy Company, which traded with Russia in 1606. England was home to about 10 joint venture companies. In 1606, England was home to about 10 joint stock companies, including the East India Company, which had been chartered in 1600 and was led by the London merchant, Sir Thomas Smith. Smythe was an early investor in the Virginia Company of London, as well as the infamous Captain John Smith, 
other investors included military men, geographers, and, and parliament members. The company's goal combined commercial, religious, and national interests. The king authorized the investors to found a colony, but their primary mission was to explore and fortify the coastland as a way to protect English shipping from the Spanish. Others, like Sir Walter Raleigh, thought the English Protestants could convert the Indians, thus preventing them from being converted by the Spanish. They could exploit the area's natural resources, resettle England's excess population, and create a new market for English goods. They also thought they could use the money as political and commercial leverage against the Spanish. The company was governed by His Majesty's Council for Virginia, composed of 13 investors who had been appointed by the king and had sworn to serve his interests. The company council, in turn, appointed a seven-man council to carry out company instructions in Virginia, with council members electing from their own a president. When this position proved too weak to keep the colony in order, King James in 1609, appointed Sir Thomas Gates to serve as governor. The company used its most abundant resource, land, to tempt settlers to pay their own passage from England to the colony, and then after arrival, to pay the company a fee to use the land. In order to establish and populate the colony, head writing centers were established to entice England commoners to travel to America. A head right refers to a legal grant of land given to settlers. A head right included the land and the owner that claimed the land. The person who is given the right to the land is the one who paid to bring people to the colony to work as an indentured servant. Head rights are most notable for their role in the expansion of all the 13 colonies. Most head rights were from 1 to 1,000 acres of land and were given to people who were willing to cross the Atlantic and help populate the colonies. These land grants consisted of 50 acres for someone moving to the area and 100 acres for people previously living in the area. Early colonists of Jamestown were employees of the Virginia Company and were responsible for the production and profit of the colony. Jamestown struggled initially. However, the colony began to flourish after a focus on tobacco production began to take shape. This increase in tobacco production required a lot more workers to handle the labor. The disproportion between the amount of land available and the population led to a situation with a low supply of labor, resulting in the growth of indentured servitude. Settlers already living in Virginia were each given two head rights of 50 acres. Immigrant colonists who paid their own passage were given one head right. And individuals would receive one head right, 
each time they paid for the transportation of another individual to the colony. Head rights were given to heads of household, and 50 acres were given to each member of a family. So many families came to the colonies together. After paying for an individual to come to the colonies, a patent needed to be obtained for the land. First, the governor or local county court provided a certificate certifying the importation of a person. Then the land was selected and surveyed. Afterwards, the description of this land was taken to the colonist secretary, who created the patent to be approved by the governor. The patent included the name of the immigrants or head rights and the document. Once a head right was obtained, it was treated as a commodity and could be bought, sold, or traded. It also could be saved and used at a later date. People who could afford to do so accumulated head rights by providing funds for poor individuals to travel to Virginia. During the 17th century, the cost of transport from England to the colonists was about six pounds per person. This system led to the development of indentured servitude where poor individuals would become workers for a specific number of years and provide labor in order to repay the landowners who had sponsored their transportation to the colonies. The claimants to head rights would receive grants for men, women, and children since anyone could become an indentured servant. A landowner could receive a head right even if the indentured servant died along the way and did not make it to Virginia alive. Landowners benefited from the head right system by importing and buying the forced and unpaid workers. Thus, along with the increase in the amount of money required to bring European indentured servants to the colonies, contribute to the shift toward the forced and unpaid worker as workers. An imported forced and unpaid worker was worth a head right of 50 acres. In the 1670s, over 400 forced, imported, and unpaid workers were used as head rights in Virginia. This number increased in the 1680s and 1690s. Many families received large tracts of land and grew in power, importing the forced and unpaid workers. For example, in Virginia, George Menifee purchased 60 forced and unpaid workers and received a total of 3,000 acres of land in 1638. Eventually, there became a large discrepancy between the number of head rights issued and the number of new residents in the colonies. There were high mortality rates of people making the journey to the colonies, so landowners received head rights for those who had died. Also, the secretary's office that issued the head rights grew more lax. There were few regulations to keep the head rights system in check. Heads rights were claimed multiple times. For instance, when a person was brought to the colonies, the ship captain and the individual paying the cost received head rights for the same person. Sometimes secretaries issued head rights for 
fictitious people during the 1660s and 1670s. The number of head rights was about four times greater than the increase in population. A final explanation was that people had accumulated and saved head rights. Head rights could be bought for about 50 pounds of tobacco. The owners of the grants would claim the land years later once it had risen in value. The forced and unpaid workers were not allowed to own land. They were used as a measurement in which the landowner would be allotted 50 acres for each one he owned. This was the first legal blockade that prevented the forced and unpaid worker from any opportunity to begin to start developing wealth, unlike their landowner partner. This is the end of our first episode, Beginning America. Thank you for listening to the podcast, How Black People Lost Their Minds. I'm Dr. Dillard, and stay tuned for our next episode.